I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. But I think also one of the things I think that's interesting is that speech as practice is also resisting or refraining from falling into that easy habitual pattern of thoughtless and harmful speech Mm -hmm. towards ourselves and others, right? And I Mm -hmm. I like that it's like when the Buddha's teaching on this and saying, yeah, speaking with reflection and generosity, but also resist. Mm-hmm. falling into the easy habitual pattern of thoughtless and harmful speech because mm-hmm. words have have power mm-hmm. as we know so well welcome to the meta hour with sharon salzberg where buddhist wisdom meets everyday life This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hello, everyone. 
Hey folks, welcome to the Meta Hour podcast. I'm Lily Cushman, and I'm the producer for this illustrious podcast. And today's episode is number 201. We're very excited to bring you this interview between Sharon and a longtime friend and colleague, Sensei Koshin Paley Ellison. Koshin is an author, a Zen teacher, a Jungian psychotherapist, and an ACPE certified chaplaincy educator. He's probably best known as the co-founder of the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care, and his work has been featured in all kinds of media outlets, the New York Times, PBS. He's also the author of several books. His most recent has just come out in 2022, entitled Untangled, Walking the Eightfold Path to Clarity, Courage, and Compassion. So the conversation today is a really personal one, and it's a lot centered around the Eightfold Path and what inspired Koshin to devote a whole book to this subject, and really looking at the ways that we can reframe practice in these different aspects of our lives. So not just our formal practice when we're on the cushion or doing walking meditation, but the practice of right effort or the practice of right speech. And some of the other pieces of this conversation are looking at loneliness, looking at shame, looking at how we can heal toxic masculinity and redefine the masculine. So as always, enjoy listening and here we go. Hello and welcome to the podcast. It is a joy, joy, a great joy to talk with you. I feel the same. It is so great to connect with you here. And where are you recording from? From sunny Tucson, Arizona. <laughs> I am in not as cold as it was a few days ago, Barry, Massachusetts. It's all yes, relative, yeah. right? <laughs> totally. And the cacti are just beginning. Some of them are beginning to bloom. Oh, oh. Yeah. yeah. I do want to mention that you were on the Meta Hour once before in 2018, a million years yes. ago, with your husband and teaching partner, Sensei Robert Chodo Campbell. For folks who want to listen to that conversation, it's episode 67 and was part of the Real Love series that we did around that time that I had written that book. And the occasion for us recording today is your wonderful new book, Untangle, which is a great title, Untangle, Walking the Eightfold Path to Clarity, Courage, and Compassion, which came out in November of 2022. So congratulations on that. Thank you so much. It was a real joy to, and we're just sharing before we started recording that it was both a real joy and uh, quite a challenge and sometimes wrenching to write. Yeah. yeah. Like I know that process, you know, and I know what it's like when a creation, something you've done comes from the deepest part of yourself and when it doesn't. And so, it's it's very different. So it's really deserving of congratulations. And I was also mentioning before that I had a conversation with Jack Cornfield, 
Today, one of my colleagues and I mentioned I was going to be recording this podcast at night. And uh, he said, oh, he's a beautiful writer. So that is, that's an enormous compliment because, you know, we all may feel rightly we have something to say and it's not always easy to find the words. Right. Yeah. And so beautiful to support one another. Yeah. (laughs) So it feels super tender to me. Yeah. So for those who aren't familiar with it, the Eightfold Path is a core teaching in Buddhism and it spans many different lineages. What drew you to write a book on this aspect of Buddhism? Well, I really, as a teacher and a psychotherapist and also a a Zen, well, I also function both as a Zen teacher and also I teach contemplative care and also in our contemplative medicine fellowship. And what we hear so consistently from students and from people that I have the opportunity to have a caring partnership with is how do I untangle this? And so it's so interesting that you, you know, brought Jack in in the beginning because when I was 17, I went to a retreat with Jack and when I was a youngster and he read this teaching from the Buddha, you know, about, the whole world is tangled in a tangle. Who will untangle this tangle? Mm-hmm. And I remember as a young person feeling that, wow, that's it's really up to me. What can and I can do my and do my work to untangle. And so that teaching has been really underneath so much of my own understanding of the path itself which is to me equal parts ethics and responsibility and wholeheartedness and i felt that there was something really important about writing about the four noble truths Mm -hmm. and beginning to like move into them a bit more intimately myself because i felt often when people write about the full path they kind of go quickly for the first three truths mm-hmm. and and I felt I wanted to really actually slow down and learn more about the aspects of the first noble truth of the practice of suffering and the reality of suffering in all its many forms and really looking at you know how that works in our own bodies and our feelings and our thoughts and and then moving into the Second noble truths, the causes of it, of this tangle, which is, you know, often classically understood as the poisons, but I thought of them as the giants, these like great beings that of mm. these mythical kind of quality that all cultures have. Mm-hmm. And they have to, with giants, you have to learn how to reckon with them. You can't turn away from them. And learning how to change and learning how to move into to into the path. I think I know for myself early in my practice, I wanted to, to kind of jump into the path. And now I feel like what I've learned is like, yeah, that's a beautiful aspiration. And part of the jumping has to be jumping into our own suffering mm-hmm. and how we cause that suffering and that responsibility and 
I learned so much reading and writing this book, you know, Mm -hmm. reading to prepare for it and writing it. Um, Oh, Mm -hmm. boy. Well, it's such an interesting and powerful teaching because it's both the most classical, it was like the Buddha's first teaching, the Four Noble Truths, and it's also so um, beyond Buddhism. It has nothing to do with Buddhism. You know, it's like if you asked any great teacher, and we have brought many through the years from Burma and Tibet and different Asian countries to the States, and if you ask them, you know, about Buddhism or some other school of thought, and some other philosophy, some other practice sets, or mm. psychology. Uh, the response was always, "The only, what matters is that it has the four noble truths. It doesn't matter how it's expressed or the languaging or you know uh, the particular ways." And and it took it so out of this sort of realm of like, my practice is better than your practice, <laughs> or or you know my perspective on life is so much better. Than yours, and I just appreciated that. Is the four noble truths there, basically, or not? So maybe we should actually start with suffering, and rather than the eightfold path, uh, if you want to go back to the beginning and talk about what that word means to you. Yeah, well, for me, I've really felt this tremendous awe actually of Shakyamuni Buddha mm-hmm. in the myth, you know, the mythical story where he just, you know, tried a bunch of things out, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I always think about it in a contemporary kind of way. Like he, you know, tried some apps he tried, you know, went to a yoga <laughs> studio, you know, he did all of these different things. And he realized at a certain point, like, mm, I have to settle down. I have to root myself somewhere. And so rooting himself under this Bodhi tree that, you know, Mm -hmm. and learning to not turn away from anything. And, you know, that classical story of, you know, Mara's armies and Mm -hmm. seduction and all of that coming at him. And there's just something so powerful that we can't get around in terms of our practice and our loving attention to what Mm -hmm. we're afraid of, our loving attention to what we want desperately to escape and our loving attention to what we think we want and what we think we are. And so I just love that he had the courage to do that. And I think that mythically, whether it's a mythical story or a true story, it doesn't really matter because in my experience, it's it's a true story. Mm -hmm. And it's just, there is something very powerful when we learn how to touch the earth and say, you know, that the house builder is finally seen, oh, yes, it's me. It's me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) My goodness, like I'm the, you know, I think of my, you know, my grandmother, Mimi Schwartz, you know, like she would say, it's, it's my sorus, it's my sorus, you know, it's like my suffering. And, uh, and, uh, and I think that there's something so important about that and not to, you know, lacerate ourselves with that, but just to say yes. Mm-hmm. And I think that having good spiritual friends is essential for doing that, you know, because mm-hmm. then they, 
then we can remind each other, yes, we can do this. It's possible. And to mm-hmm. realize that our, and for me, there's like these parts of it that I wanted to really move into in the writing was to like how the over-identifying with our bodies, the over-identifying with our feelings, the over-identifying with our thoughts in particular, how those are really cause more of the tangle. I mm-hmm. really have experienced those things so much in myself from, you know, experiencing intense forms of abuse and attack and also, you know, throughout my life, believing that what I feel is true mm-hmm. and believing what I think is true. Like these are just like the human condition, right? And yeah. Not particular to me, but I, I think we have to enter the stream through our own experience. Hmm. Well, the word that is commonly translated as suffering um, from the Pali language, the language of the original Buddhist text is dukkha, D-U-K-H-A. And um, the Four Noble Truths is really, you know, the existence of suffering. Uh, Let's look at it and face it. And... Uh, that there's a cause, which would be attachment and ignorance, and there could be an end to suffering. And the Eightfold Path is the means to the end. And you're like, uh, here's a path. And nowhere in the path is, say, become a Buddhist, you know, for example. Um, but uh, experiment. <laughs> try a key thing. Really, experiment with your mind, experiment with your heart, and so on. We'll, we'll get to that in a bit. So uh, more contemporary translations of the word dukkha, Things like stress and some wonderful translators use the word stress. I'm, you know, partly because I, I started my practice so long ago with very old fashioned texts and so on. Uh, I like suffering. I just say suffering. Um, but suffering doesn't only mean you're having a miserable time, it also means the insecurity of life and the uncertainty of life, the fragility of life. And even there's some element of the conditioned nature of life that. Is a very subtle form of suffering. It's also a form of liberation, but as a form of suffering, it's basically like one example would be, um, let's say you want dinner. You can't just say poof and have dinner appear. You have to, maybe you need a job so you can have money to buy food and you need someone to prepare the food or you need to have pots and pans to prepare it yourself or a microwave or whatever. Like all these things have to come together for dinner to be there. And that's a very innocuous example, but let's use this example. Let's say you have a friend who's suffering terribly and you have insight, not made believe and not because you're nosy, but you really can see, you know, if they only change this, they would be a lot happier and you cannot make it so. No. We can't insist. We can't demand. It's the kind of (laughs) poignancy, right? Like our hearts hurt, suffering. And to me, like that's part of loving yeah. is that we actually see that someone else is suffering and we don't, we can't fix it and we can't change it, but we can sit with them mm-hmm. and we can say, I feel how hard this is. Yeah. Yeah. And we can just sit together and we can, I can be here and you can tell me what that's like for you. Mm. It's such a generous thing. You know, I often tell the story of my father in the in the supermarket. My dad is a very chatty, mm-hmm. 
very wonderful person. And <laughs> I've met him somewhere. <laughs> yes, yes. It did. Yeah. I can't remember what. <laughs> and he's like, often in the supermarket, it takes him a long time to get there because he's always like, hello, 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 hello mm. to different people. And this, I just remember this one time where, you know, this person that he would see regularly, they would say, hi, how are you? And the person would say, I'm fine, how are you? And this time that my dad said, oh, hi, how are you? And they were by the tomatoes. And he said, well, do you really want to know? Mm. Which I thought was a beautiful response. Mm -hmm. And my dad paused and said, yes, I would like to know. And he was able to share what was re he was really struggling with. These two before then had seemingly strangers but it's like that thin veil where we think we're strangers mm. and he was just sharing what was hard about his relationships with his kids and his wife and his own health and he was just having a hard time and my dad and he just were able to sit there after he shared by the tomatoes and to say thank you and mm. the man said thank you and they embraced these mm. two people, you know, and I think it's also one of the main causes of suffering, I think, is that we often keep ourselves so isolated mm -hmm. and forget that the, there's people by the tomatoes who might mm -hmm. be available. Mm -hmm. Well, know? we look at this guy by the tomatoes and we think he's in my way. Right. You know, it's like if I only move over, I could grab that really nice looking tomato. <laughs> he is my Get enemy. Yes. Yes. And how we create more suffering by that, right? And then we come home and still feel alone. Yeah. I mean, I guess right. that is the essential point that there is suffering inherent in life because there's change inherent in life, there's conditionality inherent in life. But there's that extra suffering option that we can stop right. taking, you know, um, which will only increase, you know, if we do take that option, it only increases our loneliness and sense of isolation and contraction and all of that. And wow. that's in contrast to, as you say, sitting with the pain right. or the suffering, which opens up the possibility of love and compassion and so on, which is is very different. So I'm curious, did you have a vision of who you were writing this book for? Yeah, well, I often think of writing for my niece, my brother's mm -hmm. daughter, and, you know, it's just a young person who cares about the world and is in the world and not particularly a Buddhist. Mm -hmm. And and I also, you know, I, I think about her when I write. And I also thought about my father while I was writing. And I thought about my family and my students, you know, and Chodo, I love, of mm -hmm. course, and who I love. And I, I try to extend out and really think about, can I share something that could be of use actually when I'm no longer here? Can I mm -hmm. leave something? Can I actually do it to me it's writing has been a form of gratitude for the teachers who have come before and if i can share 
and to me, it's actually connected to you, Sharon, and your book, Faith, that we were also just talking mm-hmm. about. And, mm-hmm. you know, that there's a generosity of teachers sharing their own path. And I really wanted to do that. So not just for my particular community or the mm-hmm. people that I happen to know, but I think that teachers that are able to do that really open things up for people. I know mm-hmm. that has been true for me, like that your book, Faith, was changed the direction of my practice. Mm. And really, to me, books like that, yours, mm-hmm. have been so important. And I feel like are really important to make us remember that, oh, we're human beings. Yeah. And we come to this because of our struggles. Mm-hmm. And there's, and actually, you can change mm-hmm. and, and keep practicing because we're not arriving anywhere really yeah yeah and yet we're changing and changing and learning how to love more fully Hmm. well another beautiful aspect of the eightfold path i think as a teaching is that so many people um kind of see meditation almost as sort of mental gymnastics or something right instead of embedded in all the things you were just talking about, you know, love and, and openness and loneliness and the, you know, how are we living is really the point. And so maybe you could go through at least some of the Eightfold Path in terms of um, how it changes our life to have that perspective. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I've always loved in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is an early Buddhist text that there's a section where the Buddha talks about all the ways that I think it talks about them in terms of four ways to practice. And one of them is like, you can be sitting, laying down, walking or, you know, but standing all up yeah, yeah, yeah. and standing. Stand and it, it's basically, he describes basically every action in your life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so to me, that has always been, when I remember reading that many years ago, I was like, oh my goodness, everything is a moment of practice. Everything has that potential. Mm-hmm. And so I began to see even the April path is just like another way of saying the same thing. So we begin with having a perspective or a view, you know, as a place of practice. Like, so learning how to have the, widening view to have a sense of oh i see how i'm creating my mm-hmm. tang- entanglements i see that and i'm responsible for that I, I mean to me the perspective as a place of practice that first of the eight feels so important mm-hmm. to have a sense of not just what's in front of you even the buddha talks about this in the satipatthana sutta where he he says, you know, not just what's in front of you, but all around you. Mm-hmm. So that kind of, oh, right. If I widen out, I can actually begin to see and experience myself as just a part of the whole or even just a speck in the whole, you know. 
which I find quite delightful because I think for many years I was so interested in people liking me mm -hmm. that I was so busy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was exhausting actually to kind of run around and saying, you know, trying to be pleasing and trying to be kind of cloying. And I also found that I was both a protagonist and antagonist at the same time because I was, you know, always trying to play all the different sides because of how I'd grown up. Like you want to make sure that you're on everyone's side mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because that was the way that I'd learned to feel more safe mm -hmm. and to feel safe in the world was to kind of be pleasing to everybody. So like you had to be, you know, pleasing certain people and then to the, those people kind of being really critical of other people. <laughs> it was just, I really saw how, you know, in particular, my first teacher, John Daidaluri, mm -hmm. was a wonderful man and, you know, complex like we all are. And, but I got really caught up in this, like a lack of view. And there's a group of us who are like, oh, you know, there's these problems here. And, and we all decided just to leave. And we're mm -hmm. just like, this place, this place sucks, you know? And uh, without really making the effort to have a direct communication, without mm -hmm. really taking responsibility, without really having right view. And so it was really a powerful to, it was it, through writing this that I really began to see my own experience of learning about through that very painful experience of leaving a spiritual community mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in a kind of really not thoughtful or kind or <laughs> helpful way mm -hmm. um, and being kind of a jerk and seeing that and just saying, yes, I'm responsible for that. And how do I just appreciate that we all do that in certain moments and how I do it too? And so it was super important to just be able to relax into that mm. and, and relax into, you know, and to me, and now I still have this practice where I have a picture of him and bow to him and mm. say, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And, uh, and I appreciate you. Thank you so much, you know, and it's a quite beautiful. Yeah, so to yeah. me, it's a, about how do we learn how to move into these different practices like perspective or right view, right? And how I found that the more I began to really think about it and feel into it, the depths of it are so mysterious and unfolding. Mm-hmm. And the willingness to be rather foolish and to realize like, wow, we can really miss the boat sometimes is so important. Mm -hmm. And so not to protect ourselves from our own foolishness, mm -hmm. but to be like, but to, as I talk about also that, you know, to move from shame about it to just feeling embarrassed about it. It's like, that's so embarrassing. That's a great <laughs> distinction. I like that. And it's, and it's very healthy and yeah. wonderful. It's like, it was so embarrassing how I did that. And I feel like that's so important. 
to actually be embarrassed sometimes because mm-hmm. it's just we do crazy things sometimes and important to realize like oh i forgot to be kind i forgot to be simple mm-hmm. i forgot to ground myself Whew. so that one you know really hits home for me yeah i i really appreciate what you're saying because well, first of all, you know, there are scholars I know, uh, who, such as Bob Thurman is one example, who don't like the word right, although I keep using it myself. You know, right action, <laughs> right livelihood, right right speech, right view, um, as you did, you know, recently, like a few moments ago. And, uh, you know, and I never had a problem with it because I, I actually believe there is right and wrong. Um, he's trying to convey something more subtle than that, but... Uh, I don't think he's trying to convey moral um, equivalency. You know, there are actions we, we might do that really uh, open up our own hearts and help somebody else and remind us that we are part of common humanity and there are actions we can do. We're reckless or we're exhausted and we just are not paying attention and uh, we blurt something out that really hurts somebody or uh, we we ignore somebody, you know, so they, they feel totally excluded. There's so many. I don't have to make a list, you know. So, right. uh, and the Buddha said so beautifully once, um, if you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another. And in that kind of embarrassment over recollecting like, ooh, you know, look what I said. <laughs> um, it's It's a moment of almost like feeling into that lack of love for oneself and lack of honoring yes. the potential we actually have. And it hurts, but that's different than shame. And, you know, the kind of um, really awful self-hatred and lacerating self-hatred we can get into, you know, I'm so exactly. bad. I'm only so bad. That's all I ever do. And just on and on. Yeah. And, and also like our, our mutual friend, Judd, you know, Brewer, you know, talks about how shame is just really great for maintaining those patterns. You know, it's like to kind of ensure we won't change. Yeah. Yeah. I quote someone in my next book who who said, um, a psychologist who said, uh, the brain filled with shame cannot learn. Right. Yeah. Right. It's just so true, right? And and so to me, the one thing that I was thinking about was to another one of the Eightfold Path that just feels resonant as we're talking is effort, you know, mm-hmm. and, and actually in my, in this book, I also don't use write this, write that. I say, mm-hmm. you know, effort is a place of practice. And, and to me, it's about how are we, making that effort because it does take effort to shift from our habit of shaming ourselves or Mm -hmm. there are even into saying like, Oh, do I have to do that again? Mm -hmm. Or is there a way I'm getting into one of those moods and can I learn how to quiet down here? Mm -hmm. Because it's probably not a great time for me to speak or make decisions. And I think it's just really key to, it has been for me to really just ground all of that. And so I can say, oh, okay, okay, okay. I can be here with you mm-hmm. in a fresh way. 
And I think that effort is essential for change. Mm-hmm. You know, I often think of, you remember the, I don't know if you've seen that, like those nature shows where they kind of do this stop motion and you see this like little seed mm-hmm. turn into a little shoot and it pops out of the earth and it's very exciting. And, and I always think of like, that's effort, you know, that to grow takes mm-hmm. effort, you know, and I was watching, you know, you know, sometimes when you, people are not changing, there is actually even just something happens to our minds where mm-hmm. we're not making the effort and we just kind of fold in on ourselves. Mm. And I think that you can feel when someone has a very energetic mind or they're making the effort mm-hmm. to practice. And so I think that am I using effort is a wonderful question or how can I use my effort mm-hmm. in a fresh way right now? I think is so important because I find that, you know, just today we were traveling on the airplane and, mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, people are having all kinds of feelings, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And it was just very interesting watching people as the plane was delayed and and just watching, like, some people just snapping at each other Mm -hmm. and turning on each other when they're clearly traveling somewhere nice together. And because that we get under this pressure. And so I think that when these moments of pressure happen in our lives, you know, it was kind of sweet. Chodo and I were just standing there and just kind of watching people and just feeling them, you know, and just feeling super tender towards how we function under pressure in so many different ways. And it was kind of wonderful not to turn to a device and to just look and like, wow, this is a moment where we could actually make the effort and just feel everybody mm-hmm. and and be caring, not really doing anything and not really fixing anything, but being kind mm-hmm. and curious. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Well, it's also interesting to me that there's such a um, emphasis, say, on speech, right speech, dare I say, you know. Uh, I mean, I do it not because I think it's wrong to do something else, but because, like I said about suffering, I'm so old, (laughs) old-fashioned. I'm used to these very old-fashioned translations, so they are comfortable for me. Um, You know, like to see that, you know, when you said people are not, necessarily turning on one another in the airport or maybe they are you know and how powerful our speech actually is and how it has such an impact on our own hearts and on one another truly you know and really it's and i think as the teaching as i understand it you know means that it's speaking with reflection and generosity Mm -hmm. but i think also one of the things i think that's interesting is that speech as practice is also resisting or refraining from falling into that easy habitual pattern of thoughtless and harmful speech Mm -hmm. towards ourselves and others. Right. And I Mm -hmm. I like that. It's like when the Buddha's teaching on this and saying, yeah, speaking with reflection and generosity, but also resist, 
mm-hmm. falling into the easy habitual pattern of thoughtless and harmful speech because mm-hmm. words have have power mm-hmm. as we know so well and how are we using them when we talk to others as well as ourselves like how are we talking in the bathroom mirror how are we talking when we see things in the world and where with mass shootings and Mm -hmm. terrible things happening or political divides and the polarity that we're currently in, Mm -hmm. but which, you know, is people, some people say, Oh, it's these times, but that's not really these times. It happens throughout time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think when collectively we fall into these easy habitual patterns of thoughtless or harmful speech. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's just, I don't think there's anything particularly contemporary happening except we're having our contemporary experience of it. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's how do I really learn how to make that effort in my speech? And I just love that kind of what you were saying that there there are things that are right and wrong Mm -hmm. and there are things that are harmful and beneficial. And how do we make that effort to, you know, sometimes (laughs) one of my students reminded me, you know, we were in a meeting together and he was just describing so beautifully about just saying to himself, just shut up. (laughs) <laughs> to himself to himself because yeah, he was yeah. just found he found like these stories you know proliferating in his mind yeah and almost the urge to say them and they weren't helpful yeah they were just habitual and so like if we can have a sense of humor and be like shut up you know it's like <laughs> or like let's shut that down right now we don't we don't need that right now it's yeah. not so <laughs> I just thought it was so funny and fresh, mm-hmm. you know, to that sometimes we can just focus on that, you know, resistance towards yeah. the fall. Well, actually, I'm going to segue over. Um, I'm going to come back to uh, my plan for, you know, <laughs> unfolding this this interview. But I want to segue over, since we're talking about speech, Um to the work you do uh, with physicians. Mm. Uh, because I've mm. just recently, you know, had friends describing what we might call terrible bedside manner, you know, like physicians saying something to them that terrified them. And, yeah. uh, you know, and just when one is ill, anyway, you know, just the kind of um, delicacy, the vulnerability you feel. And then you're in a relationship with this person. Maybe you never even met them before, you know, if it's a hospital. And uh, so do you talk about right speech, so to speak, when, when you... Uh, we do. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So we, it's so amazing. You know, Chodo and I have had the privilege through the New York Zen Center to be teaching, and we're on the faculty of University of Arizona's Andrew Weil Integrative mm-hmm. Medicine Fellowship and another Integrative Medicine Fellowship. And we also have taught in University of Tokyo and, and Kyoto and Sophia University in Japan. And what we found over the past, like, I don't know, 15, 20 years mm-hmm. was that physicians are in trouble. <laughs> uh-huh. And 
and it's heartbreaking and doesn't really matter what their profession inside of medicine is, but they are struggling and, you know, saying like, Oh, I'm so bad at my self care. I'm so bad at my self compassion. So like, and, you know, as we know that physicians have the highest forms of divorce, highest forms of drug and alcohol abuse of, uh, leaving the profession, you know, 47% mm -hmm. of physicians plan to leave the profession the next three to five years. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a crisis actually. And this was before COVID mm -hmm. and which we're still kind of in the wake of. And so we really felt that we had to, well, speaking of doing something, we felt like we had to do mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. And because you feel like you keep hearing the cry, you know, and in my in Buddhism, the bodhisattva of, of Avalokiteshvara bodhisattva, the bodhisattva of compassion. And she hears, her name means the one who hears all the mm -hmm. cries of the world. Mm -hmm. and, and we kept hearing it and it felt almost began to feel like negligence not to do something more mm -hmm. significant. And so we created this contemplative medicine fellowship for physicians and nurse practitioners and physician assistants to two years ago. We launched it. We're in our second cohort and we have some amazing faculty like mm. you, like you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> True. <laughs> and uh, it's been very powerful and we actually use the arc of the four noble truths as the curriculum mm -hmm. and so really beginning first and staying a while in suffering and mm. really letting them and building sangha and which i think you know in some ways we're focusing on this particular group of clinicians but it's really maybe we could say it's for everybody Mm -hmm. You know, it's, you know, how do we form Sangha and a true sense of fellowship together and actually a space where we can contemplate what medicine actually is mm. and what is the medicine we actually need. And so it's been so amazing to see this group, uh, these cohorts coming through and really learning how to turn towards each other mm. and to turn towards themselves. And we focus not only on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, but also looking each month in the curriculum of what's happening inside of you, how are your interpersonal relationships, how are these aspects working, and how is that also in your clinical work? And so those three prongs, because in medical school and actually we could even say in school itself we're not really taught interpersonal and intrapersonal skills mm -hmm. and so or even that it's important to focus on them in a very intentional way so it's been exquisite and feels like one of the deepest privileges mm. i've ever had is to accompany and be a partner with these incredible clinicians. Wow, how lovely. Yeah. Yeah. It's rather mind-blowing to me. Mm. It feels like the first 
thing that I've done that feels like a direct food program. Wow. Like we're like cooking, nourishing food. Yeah. And yeah. like here is some food and let's eat it together and, and talk about it. Wow, nice. Yeah. Um, so going back to your book for a moment, um, uh, one of the themes from the book and, and your teaching in general is toxic masculinity. And maybe the place to start is how you're defining the term and how it's become important for you to teach on. Well, I think that masculinity itself is complex and challenging. Mm -hmm. And I think things when we don't refrain from and take reflection on things tend to become stagnant and toxic in mm -hmm. general. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like stagnant water, right? And tends to breed a lot of mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I feel the same with masculinity itself. You know, actually at our center where there's a group of people who are beginning to think about gathering together people identify as men to actually talk about what does it mean actually mm -hmm, to be mm -hmm. a man? What is it actually, you know, it's almost like that many years ago, you know, the incredible work of consciousness racing in the, in the women's movement. Mm -hmm. And, and then it began a bit with, you know, or in some big ways with Robert Bly and actually Jack and, Michael Mead and mm -hmm. others and James Hillman, who are some of the mentors of mine, in particular James. And, and so there's this interest in like, how do we look at this differently? And how do we make it take responsibility for how we are men? And because as we know, men tend to be responsible for a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And I think it's in, in the same kind of way, like physicians, like if we don't really begin to think about how we are functioning as a person mm -hmm. and we don't take responsibility and reflect on how that's working in our interpersonal relationships and at work and in our lives and inside ourselves, we get into trouble. Mm -hmm. and, and I really feel that as a man myself, and also, it's just been really amazing to see people in our own community really getting super interested and in saying we need to have not only a conversation, but an ongoing exploration and intentionality of bringing this into practice. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, like, like very much like our BIPOC affinity groups and our, we have a kind of a a Jewish Buddhist kind mm -hmm. of group at our place and that there's something beautiful about affinity groups that to say like, Oh, there is something about this and that we need to have a space to talk about. Cause I know certainly in my own experience and yeah, I write a lot about my own experience of learning what it means to be in this particular body of a man and it has not been easy. Mm -hmm. And in particular, being a Jewish man, in particular, being a queer 
Jewish man and and now being a monk, you know, like there there mm-hmm. are really powerful layers and layers and layers. And, you know, I was also just, uh, you know, everywhere we go, we people are responding to us differently because of how people perceive our gender. And it doesn't actually matter our opinion about it. And that's why I think it's just wonderful to realize that suffering is universal and we can actually begin to focus on where can we pay attention? Mm-hmm. Where can I do a little bit of work? Or as you know, I was just reminded by a friend, Paul Haller, and he reminded me of this beautiful quote from Suzuki Roshi that he heard him say, he said, that, you know, I'm trying to love you all. <laughs> and sometimes and sometimes it's very hard. Oh. <laughs> Go Roshi. And, <laughs> I just thought it was so beautiful. It's beautiful. And, honest. and so honest. Like, yeah, sometimes it's hard. And so I think men, you know, learning men to love other men is hard because also there's this you know, toxicity around that being, you know, oh, are you gay if mm-hmm. you want to be close, you know, and mm-hmm. as if like to be close as a man. Mm-hmm. And as we know, we're socialized so early in our lives. And this is, of course, true for all the different genders, you know, people identify as non-binary and we live in this kind of amazing moment in mm-hmm. many ways of really beginning to expand our understanding of what gender even is. Mm-hmm. You know, so how do we get curious about what that is? And and I think it's many people give critiques about these kind of affinity groups. Well like Buddhism is supposed to be about emptiness and so mm-hmm. why you know why focus on that? Well well, we still live in a systemically racist society mm-hmm. that's run mostly by men, and it's helpful to also <laughs> take a look at these things. And really important, like you were just with dear Shaquille and that beautiful conversation that two of you had. And, and you know, it's just really important to mm-hmm. really look at power really looking at difference looking at what does it mean to be a diverse person mm-hmm. and how to to me part of the medicine of toxic masculinity is to look at masculinity diversity you know and i think it becomes toxic when we think it looks one way mm, that's interesting uh, And so I think that, you know, I've been very moved by Shaquille's work in general and just Mm -hmm. like the sense of deep diversity as men Mm -hmm. and deep diversity. Wouldn't it be great if we all reflected on the deep diversity of our gender, not to, not to only do that, Mm -hmm. but I think it needs its due and focus until we allow something fresh to come from it. And to me, that always is like a groundswell, because if I, even in writing this 
this book is really like, wow, like I'm surprising myself. And to me, like that is the part of the path that is the most important Mm. that to really realize that, wow, I think I know something and, Oh, it just reminds me of that story that I love so much about, you know, Mara was like sitting on the side of the road or with his attendant and, you know, they see the attendant gets all worked up because they see someone coming down the road and like Mara, you know, they, they're going to wake up. And Mara's like, don't worry, just watch. And so they watch the person you know, have an aha moment. And then the next moment they go, mm, now I know. Mm. And so the moment they're like, now I know, they're kind of lost again. Mm-hmm. So Mara's like, oh, see, they're back with us. <laughs> All is well. Uh-huh. And I think that's the same way for being a man or being whatever gender we are. You know, we can even get caught in some idea of it. And to me, the beauty of practice is not to have an idea of it, but to have a lived experience of it. Mm. And what it, and again, what is helpful, what is generous, and how do we refrain from indulging the pattern? Yeah. Mm. That's so great. Because I think the analysis is really of the many strands that make up this incredibly lonely culture, you know, cultures, it's not just one. Um, and uh, which is something that really needs to be investigated, and hopefully, uh, having a sense of renewed connection that is that is much bigger than what yeah. we've kind of whittled it down to, you know, which is like nobody, not even ourselves. Um, and and to begin to expand that and include more and more elements of ourselves and more and more elements of life and. Um, till we are much more fully connected. And uh, so uh, I know you teach a lot about loneliness and what we can do to navigate it in our relationship with ourselves and others. And so I don't know if there's anything uh, you would like to add. Well, there's something very striking. So we're in a moment, we're recording this in February of 2023, where mm. there's a very popular show at the moment called The Last of Us that was came out and people were like, oh my God, you have to see this episode. And where it's this, you know, story about this pandemic and people are turned into zombies. But mm. for some reason, like the, the third episode, people are talking about like, wow, it blew my mind. And I can't believe that this was so moving. And Choro and I watched it just to like have an experience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is everyone talking about? And it was just so interesting because it was a it was a story, a very beautiful, simple story in a way, of these two people falling in love, these two men falling and learning to fall in love and learning to actually have this very ordinary and wonderful love together and they grow old together and there's all these time jumps and you see them over i think 20 years or something and it was very sweet but there was something very poignant to me about people's response to it and like i couldn't believe it i couldn't even believe like that's 
possible. And that spoke to me about loneliness. Mm-hmm. That like, wow, that, that there's something in our culture that is, again, the pandemic of loneliness was very alive and well before COVID. Mm-hmm. And now we are again in the wake of that pandemic. And that there's still like this to even see two people really caring for one another and seeing each other's eccentricities and Mm -hmm. being loving and learning how to love their eccentricities and the amazement of that to me just made me very sorrowful. Like that we've forgotten in some way the depth of what's possible. Mm Mm-hmm to really connect, to really be caring, to really be loving. Mm. And so to me, like I, you know, it's continuously go back to that teaching of the Shakyamuni Buddha and where he, you know, says like the whole of spiritual life Mm -hmm. is having good spiritual friends. And Mm -hmm. I think what kind of spiritual friends? Mm -hmm. And can you really allow people to really know you? And to Mm. sit with you. And when we get scared, that's okay. And how do we soften that? Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. What's the medicine? So I'm wondering if just before we finish, you'll give us some medicine. Uh, (laughs) If you would lead us in a short meditation practice. Yeah. Yeah. Happy to. Thank you so much, Sharon. So I wanted to share a meditation. So we'll, that actually comes from the book that has been super important to me and to, because one of the things that has, that I realized in the writing process was that the armor that I had created and was so grateful that I had created or my psyche or whatever created it to protect me as a child had become a cage the size of my own body. And so this is a meditation to reflect on that and to how do we come out of it? Yeah. So just take a moment to rest your sit bones in your, however you're sitting or maybe you're walking, but just feel your sit bones. Maybe even put your hands on your lower belly and allow your lower belly to be soft. just below your belly button, even a teeny tiny bit. And allow your shoulders to be open even a bit more, even a millimeter more open. Just allow a little bit more air. And then bringing your attention to your spine and your uprightness and how do we bring your uprightness into your body and mind. So from the groundedness to the softness to the openness and to the uprightness. 
beautiful qualities to bring into the world of right now. And so this meditation I call opening the cage. Mm. And it's a practice to help you to, and help me to open up to the possibility of going a bit beyond our stories. Because in my experience before, we can be free. We often need to be able to imagine ourselves free. So imagine yourself locked in a tight cage, almost the same shape as your body. And feel how that feels. Perhaps how uncomfortable that is or perhaps how familiar that is. The lack of movement and possibility. And imagine that the bars of this cage are made out of the stories that limit you. What stories are the bars in front of you made out of? For me, these are the stories I tell myself the most often. My greatest tips. Then imagine the stories that make up the side walls of your cage. What are the stories you're a little less aware of that actually squeeze you in? And let's just breathe into that just inhalation and exhalation noticing what your experience is and now take a moment to imagine the bars behind you and what are the stories that keep you pressed against that wall and breathe into these inhalation and exhalation. Notice what you're experiencing pressed on every side. And now imagine that the cage is unlocked as it actually has always been. What does that feel like in your body and mind? As you push the door open, what happens? Unlocking our cages is a constant place of practice. May this meditation be a benefit to all beings as we are untangling ourselves and to remember that each person we see 
and imagine are also untangling something, mm. unlocking their own cage, or maybe feeling locked in. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to catch up and hear about all the great, truly great work you're doing. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today, and a big thanks to all our listeners out there. Always a joy and a love to be with you, Sharon. Mm. Thank you, dear. Lots of love. To learn more about Koshan's work and teaching, you can visit zencare.org. Z-E-N-C-A-R-E dot org. And also get yourself a copy of his new book, Untangled, Walking the Eightfold Path to Clarity, Courage, and Compassion, available wherever books are sold. This has been the Meta Hour podcast brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. And may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.